Russian President Vladimir Putin called the U.S. dollar's drop in dominance, quote, objective and irreversible during the recent BRICS summit in South Africa, as Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa formally agreed to use local currencies instead of the U.S. dollar. It's the first shoe to drop. As demand for the dollar weakens, the buying power of the dollar also weakens. That's why Birch Gold Group is busier than ever. Investors and savers are looking to harness the power of physical gold held in a tax-sheltered IRA. Text MONICA to 989-898 for your free info kit on gold. Thousands of happy customers, an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, and countless five-star reviews, you can count on Birch Gold to help you navigate transitioning an existing IRA or 401k into an IRA in gold. As the U.S. dollar continues to receive pressure from foreign countries, digital currency, and central banks, arm yourself with information on how to protect your savings. Just text MONICA to 989-898 to claim your free info kit from Birch Gold Group right now. Hey guys, I'm Monica Crowley, and this is the Monica Crowley Podcast. Thank you so much for joining me here on this Thursday as we're getting close to closing out the month of July. Man, how time flies. This is your go-to for hot liberty, a safe space for all of us thought criminals, independent thinkers, and happy warriors. Don't forget to check me out on social media. Instagram, I am at Monica Crowley underscore. And Twitter and True Social, I'm at Monica Crowley. Also by email at Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Monica Crowley Podcast at gmail.com. Well, today I want to do something a little different because we always have so many grave issues with which to deal every day. So much coming at us at any given time that we need some intellectual and emotional relief now and again. Also, because it's the end of July, and summer is supposed to be about fun, levity, and yes, happiness, I thought today's show could be a bit of a palate cleanser about happiness. We are always so tied up with our daily lives that we can lose sight of the really big questions and what is truly important. And as I thought about today's show and our extraordinary guest, I reflected on what Thomas Jefferson wrote in the Declaration of Independence, and we just marked July 4th, um, and he wrote that our creator has endowed us with certain unalienable rights, among them including life, liberty, and the often overlooked phrase, which was a brilliant phrase on Jefferson's part, the pursuit of happiness. But have we ever stopped to think, what is happiness? What does it mean to be happy? Can we all achieve it? And what is its connection to leading a good and fulsome life? Big existential questions, right? Well, good thing we've got a true philosopher with us today to help us with these unwieldy questions. He is someone that I've admired for quite a while now, and I am absolutely delighted to have him here with us today. Dr. Gad Saad is one of the best-known public intellectuals fighting the tyranny of political correctness. He has taken, like the rest of us, a lot of slings and arrows, sacrificed a lot to stand for what is right. He is also a psychologist, a professor of marketing at the John Molson School of Business at Concordia University, and he is a pioneer in the application of evolutionary psychology to consumer behavior. He's also the host of the SAD, S-A-A-D, his last name, the SAD Truth Podcast. There are so many plays on his name. We're going to ask him about that too. Here he's also known as the Godfather, which is absolutely hilarious and brilliant. And he's also the author of several excellent books, including The Parasitic Mind, How Infectious Ideas 
are killing common sense. And I want to have him back on the show at a later point uh, to talk to him about that book because it is absolutely superb and important. His latest book, though, is why he is here today. And it's also really important and a lovely book, too. It's called The Sad, S-A-A-D, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Living the Good Life. It's available now wherever you get your books. Dr. Gad Sad joins us now. Gad, welcome. Oh, what a lovely introduction. Thank you so much, Monica. Such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you. Oh, it's, it's you know, to paraphrase Henry Kissinger in a different context, Gad, it has the added virtue of being true. <laughs> Everything that I do said. Um, and as I told you off the air before we get started, I have been an admirer of your work for some time, and I'm just thrilled to finally have the chance to talk. Thank you so much. You know, it's one of the things that's lovely about all this public engagement is you sometimes find out that someone knows of your work when you never thought that they would know who you are, right? So so I'm delighted that you follow my work and I'll make sure to remedy the fact that I don't follow you and we'll head off right after our chat to make sure that I reciprocate that kind gesture. Oh, that's very kind of you. Very sweet and generous. Thank you, Gad. I appreciate that. Before we get started and really do a deep dive into the concept of happiness, because a lot of people will just, they they view happiness as sort of a superficial concept and it's experiential, right? It's based on experience, external things. Well, I'll be happy when I get that house. I'll be happy when I get that relationship. I'll be happy when I buy that new pair of shoes, which is my uh, situation. Get always with shoes. Um, But uh, before we get into that, I would love for you to please let the audience know a little bit about your background because you have such a fascinating story. My my personal background or my academic background? Well, a little of both. Got you. Okay, so I was uh, born in Lebanon, uh, grew up in Lebanon till the age of 11. We were part of the last group of remaining Jews in uh, Lebanon. Uh, most Jews had pretty much either been exterminated or forced to flee from much of the Middle East. But in Lebanon, there was still a very, very small community that was left, and we were part of that small community. Then, regrettably, when the civil war started in the mid-70s, it was no longer feasible to to be Jewish in Lebanon. And so we went through some very, very harrowing times uh, during that first year of the civil war and then ended up in Montreal, Canada, where I, you know, grew up, you know, starting the age of 11. Uh, Eventually, I moved to the U.S. to pursue my studies, returned to Canada uh, to start my professorship have had several stints as a visiting professor at several American universities. Uh, my parents, uh, to, to go back to the personal element, uh, my parents, after we had emigrated to Canada, kept returning to Lebanon because they still had some business interests in Lebanon. And on one of their return trips to Lebanon in 1980, they were kidnapped by Fatah and uh, some really bad things happened to them. But then, uh, they were in captivity, uh, I believe, for eight days, and then through many of the you know high-powered connections that uh, they had, they were able to be miraculously freed. And so, since 1980, uh, no one in my family has returned to Lebanon, despite the fact that I've actually been asked, uh, you know, since I've become a professor and someone who's you know in the public eye, I've been asked to return uh, to Lebanon for all sorts of reasons. And I was guaranteed security and all that, but I've never quite had the, I've been tempted, but I've never had, I've never felt sufficiently at ease to return, but I certainly do hope that uh, one day I'll be able to take my children there because I, I so regret the fact that I've never been able to immerse them into my Middle Eastern heritage. Mm, it is. It's quite a journey. I mean, we all have our journeys, and and that one is one of great distance in so many ways, Gad. So you have spent most of your career in psychology. You are a psych- psychologist focused on consumer behavior, how people make decisions. And like I said, you could probably have a field day by peering into my closet, a lot of shoes. Um but you've also dealt with uh, thorny psychological issues, and and I think to the parasitic mind, which is a book that is just a blockbuster. 
And those thorny psychological issues include attempting to explain how our leaders behave and just the general madness around us. So as I think about this book about happiness, the sad truth about happiness, why did you decide to take on happiness and why now? Well, what a, thank you so much for that question. I actually uh, try to answer that question in the first chapter because it, as you said, it's a it's a real departure for me. I, if you would have asked me five years ago, do I have on my sort of to do list the desire to write a happiness book? I would have told you absolutely not. But what ended up happening is that there was kind of a confluence of factors. Number one, many people would write to me and say, what's your secret to always being playful? And even when you're taking on people on social media and you're getting spicy, there you always seem to be, uh, you know, playful. There's a twinkle in your eye. You have this, you know, big sense of humor. What's your secret to always appearing jovial and happy? So that was one, if you like, uh, factor, you know, that affected my uh, desire to write a happiness book. The second is I noticed that whenever I would post something, that was prescriptive in nature. So my career as an academic has been to to operate in descriptive world. I I seek to describe human behavior. I don't offer some optimal prescriptions for how to live life. You know, I leave that to, you know, self-help people and clinical psychologists and so on. But then whenever I would post something that was prescriptive in nature, that would often be the content that would move people the most. Now, to me, many of my you know, prescriptive tweets, let's say, were rather obvious. I mean, you know, get off the couch and go get it, right? I mean, who doesn't know that? That it, You didn't need God sad to tell you that. But I realized that when people trust you, when they uh, believe you're authentic, when, you know, you obviously have the credentials to, to speak about what you're, you know, your the positions you're espousing, people will listen. And so I thought, you know what, why don't I take a shot to kind of move away from a lot of the culture war material that I was talking about. I'm, I, of course, I remain fully committed to that battle. As you said, you know, I wrote The Parasitic Mind because, you know, I've spent now nearly 30 years in academia fighting against all this nonsense. I thought, boy, it would be nice to write a book that is only positive. It's all uplifting. It's all joyful. And so I thought, you know what? Uh, I'm an intellectual variety seeker, something that I talk about in, in the current book. Why don't I take a shot at doing it? And hence, it led me to this book. I love the positivity in this book because we are surrounded by so much darkness, Gad, that we need a book like this. And and as I said, we need a palate cleanser. We, we cover a lot of heavy-duty stuff on this show, um, including you know, politics and the great reset, and there's a lot of darkness around. So this is why I wanted to bring you on, especially as we head into August uh, with your new book, so that people people will be uplifted by your message. How do you define happiness? Right. So right away, the first distinction is to, and I think you alluded to that in your introduction, it's not, you know, an ephemeral transient thing, right? So that, so if you, if you're going to use an endocrinological framework, you'd say the difference between say the dopamine system and the serotonin system. If I purchased the next stilettos, as you were mentioning, that might give me a quick, quick dopamine hit. If I watch the porn movie or eat the juicy burgers, that's not really what I mean by existential happiness. Serotonin, on the other hand, right, is contentment, right? If if you're sitting with your spouse 20 years into a marriage and you just kind of look at each other and smile and you feel content, you feel safe, you feel existentially happy, that's really what I'm talking about. It's that existential sense of well-being you know of course there are daily struggles of course there are daily stressors so being existentially happy doesn't mean that you're not ephemerally pissed off at something i just have to turn on my twitter and someone will piss me off but uh, (laughs) yeah but you know existential happiness is how i define it it's a sort of a long-term enduring sense of you know what my life is overall quite good i love that concept of happiness. And I love that you set it into that framework because the the temporary stuff, like I mentioned my shoes, getting a new pair of great shoes makes me happy. But I, and I'll share this story with you, Gad. I think you'll appreciate it. I've always loved shoes. I mean, most women <laughs> do, I think. And I remember back when I got my first real paycheck, you know, not a babysitting paycheck, but a real one. 
And I went into the Gucci store in Manhattan and I bought a pair of my first designer shoes and they were just, I wasn't going to go crazy. I just bought the basic black pumps from Gucci. And I said, this is going to be an investment. And it was a couple of hundred dollars at the time, which, you know, still is a crazy amount of money for the shoes. But I, I really said, okay, I'm going to treat myself and buy a pair of designer shoes. And they were basic black pumps. I, I wore them for about a year. And I'll tell you there was, and I was so proud of these shoes. So I did get that temporary dopamine hit. Okay, when I bought the shoes and took them home and admired how beautiful they were. And then every time I put them on, I got the dopamine hit. And then one day, Gad, um, I was walking to an event in New York City and one of the heels cracked off. Oh, no. Yeah. So I remember, I'm like, now what am I going to do? I ended up not going to the event. I, I like stumbled into the street on Park Avenue, hailed a cab, went home. And I'm holding the heel in my hand, and I, I sent it to a, a shoe guy who fixed the heel. But it was in that moment, Gad, that I realized, okay, as as beautiful as these shoes are, and how happy they made me temporarily, it's still just a material good. It is Indeed. still something, and there's scripture that talks about this as well, that you know, the, even the most resplendent coat can be eaten by moths. And it's all just temporary. So your definition of happiness is more existential and deeper and spiritual, correct? Indeed. And thank you for sharing your story. It might interest you. So a couple of things I'll say. Number one, it might interest you to know that in some of my earlier books, so this book right here, I know I know, we're not doing a visual, but I'm pointing to one of the one of my books behind me the evolutionary basis of consumption which is an academic book not a trade book and then the consuming instinct right here i actually talk about an evolutionary explanation of high heels so that might be something <laughs> that that you know why is it that women and of course men appreciate women who wear heels so for example when you have say exotic dancers or more colloquially strippers uh, they don't usually do their, uh, you know, their lascivious dances, you know, with flat shoes. They wear <laughs> high heels precisely because high heels create certain visual stimuli that are quite appealing to the male gaze, as we say. So, and, and literally the, the term from zoology is lordosis. Basically what happens is about a 30 degree angle raise of you of the buttock buttocks right mm -hmm. and so it's not surprising that women find themselves feeling sexier when they wear high heels and it's not surprising that men find women who wear high heels to be sexy it all boils down to evolution uh, monica so that's number one number two to your point about you know material possessions being ephemeral and so on there's actually quite a bit of research uh, some of which i cite in the current book a lot some of it done by my former psychology professor in my, in my PhD at Cornell, his name is Thomas Gilovich, where they looked at how much happiness do you get from either a purchase of a material good versus a purchase of an experiential good. And it is by far, and it's been repeated in many different contexts, that the enriching yourself with you know, alluring experiences ends up giving you a lot more bang for your buck than any material possession that you might collect. Yeah, it's such an important point to remind ourselves of. And it's so it, it really is a central pillar of your book. So you do take us way back to ancient Greece to help us uh, sort of think about happiness today. What do you think we can learn from the ancient Greeks? Oh, my goodness. You know, I'll start with the following story, uh, which I, I actually recount in the book. Uh, do, do you know who Nassim Talib is, uh, Monica? No. Is Nassim Talib is a fellow Lebanese author who's, who's a best-selling author. He he operates largely in the, the financial world. He, he was a, a, a trader himself. He wrote books like... Uh, uh, fooled by randomness and the black swan and anti oh yes yes of course yes okay exactly and so uh, we're we, we know each other well we're good friends and he once i mean jokingly said to me but it turns out that he might be he might have been onto something he looked at me kind of quizzically and said 
I don't know what you guys study in psychology, God, because everything that there is to know about human nature, the ancient Greeks have already said it. And uh, so I kind of laughed that, you know, he's ribbing on me. But when I was working on the research for this book, I stopped for a moment. I said, you know what? I think Nassim Taleb might be right because every time, Monica, I would have some sort of, you know, quote, brilliant insight that I thought was something that I came up with. Oh, here comes Epictetus telling me that he's already said it 2000 years ago. Here comes Seneca. Here comes Aristotle. Here comes Marcus Aurelius. So I think there's a lot that we could learn from these guys. The, the only thing that they didn't have, which we have, is you know we've got the, the experimental design methodology that allows us to test these things empirically. We've got the data analytic approaches that allow us to test the hypotheses using you know uh, statistical inferencing. But in terms of their ability to introspect and philosophize about these really important features of our you know human nature it, i was just bewildered by how smart they are and I, i've had several classicists on my show where i've posed the question to them what explains the greek miracle and and i mean there are different answers but to your point uh you really can't study happiness without delving yourself in, in the literature of the ancient greeks they they were simply astounding it's so fascinating. It really is fascinating. I'm I'm more of a Roman Empire kind of girl than the Greek Empire, but I the Romans weren't really uh, keen on happiness. It was like self indulgence and excess more than uh, the Greeks right. had some of that too. But they were not uh, they were not particularly philosophical on the question of happiness. It was all brute force and raw power. Um, right. Gad, is there a difference? Uh, speaking of the past, is there a difference between how we view happiness today? and how the culture currently defines and, and depicts happiness and how past generations considered it. Well, so let's say if we if we continue with the thread of the ancient Greeks, uh, the, the, the earlier ancient Greeks thought that, you know, your happiness lot, if you'd like, was really within the purview of the gods, right? So there was nothing that you could do that would allow you to be the architect of your happiness. And then later, uh, philosophers of the ancient Greek tradition actually placed, you know, human agency at the center of happiness. So already there you see a shift, right? And in a sense, it's similar to what we now talk about the difference between internal and external locus of control, right? Internal locus of control is, you know, something happens to me because of my doing versus external locus of control would be something happened because it's it's an it's fate it's written in the sky it's the gods and so i think the big shift temporarily speaking historically speaking is whether you situate happiness as something that's outside your control or within your control now in a sense though even today when we recognize that we could be the architects of our happiness some of it is out of our control monica in that the genes you know uh, determine about 50% of our individual differences in happiness. But the good news is that that means that there's still 50% up for grabs, right? Some of us are born with a sunny disposition, so we're already ahead of the game when it comes to climbing Mount Happiness. But then if I don't take, if, if, if I'm born with a sunnier disposition than you, Monica, but then I don't adopt the proper mindsets, if I don't make the right decisions to continue summiting Mount Happiness, then you might overtake me. And so it's about 50-50. 50% is within my control and 50% is simply inscribed in my genes. Yeah, I, that makes total sense to me. Um, and it seems so obvious when you make the point, but I, I think most people don't don't sort of see it that way or realize it that way. You know, it's getting back to the the point about materialism and, and that sort of thing and the external signals that people absorb and they say, you know, it's always sort of future oriented. When I get that job, I'll be happy. When I get married, I'll be happy. When I find the right person, I'll be happy, whatever it might be. And I think too, there, there are so many um, people who write, you know, very famous people, very wealthy people who've achieved a lot. And they will say, and you'll see this all the time, they'll say, you know, when I was growing up, we were poor, but we didn't know it. And I was running around barefoot in, on a dirt road in, you know, back roads, Georgia, or whatever the, the personal story might be. 
and we were all just happy. And, and we, you know, once a week, if we could afford it, we'd go to McDonald's and that was a real treat. So it's, it's a relative self-assessment. And, and as you go out into the world and you grow up, then you start comparing yourself to what other people have achieved and what they have. But what you're saying is happiness is not really related to that at all. It's more of an internal compass. Is that right? I mean, yes and no in that, of course, there is that internal element. But when you use the word relative and compare, you actually perked up my ears because the, I do talk about uh social comparison theory, the idea that we often derive some of our compass of how well we're doing in life by comparing ourselves to others. So think about, say, the the maxim or the adage, uh, you know, keeping up with the Joneses, what's happening there, right? Uh, I see those showy neighbors next to me buying that fancy car. And I say, oh, those assholes, I'm going to show them, I'm going to get a better car, right? So, and that's, by the way, it's called the positional economy in behavioral economics, meaning that what drives a lot of consumer purchases is trying to assuage the fact that I feel as though I'm losing in that positional arms race. Now, when it comes specifically to happiness, there is an element that is comparative. So there is a study that I cite in uh, in uh, in my current book on happiness where i talk about the relationship between how mu- how much sex you have and happiness and of course none of your listeners monica are going to be surprised that all other things equal the more sex someone has the happier they are <laughs> but now here comes the second part here's the comparative part what makes me even happier monica is that i have more sex than you have, assuming you're my friend. So it's not enough for me to have a lot of sex. I should have more sex than all of my referent group, right? And so I joke in the book, I say, make sure to marry someone who's got a big sex drive and make sure that all your friends are, you know, uh, celibate nuns, then that's your path to happiness because I need to have a lot of sex and I need to know that you're not having as much sex as me. That really (laughs) makes me happy. Yeah, the the comparisons, and we all do it, it's just human nature, but it really is a path to great distress and, and unhappiness because there will always be someone richer, prettier, younger, more athletic, whatever the case might be. And so that is just a fool's errand, but so many of us fall into it. One of your chapters, uh, go ahead, Gad. Go ahead. No, I just said, indeed, I I was just agreeing with you. Okay. Well, I'm very flattered that you agree with me on that. Um, One of your chapters deals with what you call anti-fragility. What is anti-fragility and what does it have to do with happiness? Well, and here, by the way, in reference to your earlier point where you said, you know, do we have to, to be listening to the ancient wisdoms and the ancient Greeks? So I start that chapter in the epigraph of that chapter and by citing Seneca where Seneca, and that's going to answer your question about anti-fragility. He basically said, I'm I'm paraphrasing the exact words. I don't have the quote in front of me, but he basically said that you want a tree that has withstood the constant stressors of the wind, right? The fact that it's able to bend, right? That stressor allows it to then be anti-fragile, right? So Let's now link it to the parasitic mind, my my earlier book that you kindly mentioned in the introduction. I argue in the parasitic mind that when we create university ecosystems where no student should ever be exposed to the stressor of having opposing viewpoints, well, you are being exactly the opposite of anti-fragile because our prefrontal cortex, our capacity to engage in critical thinking presumes that we are going to be exposed to stressors like people who disagree with us. And by creating the sterile environment where we should all agree on everything, we're not fostering anti-fragility. So anti-fragility is an incredibly important concept in understanding optimal flourishing. The best tasting wines are those that grow where the vines grow in stressed environments. The best trees are those that have faced the stressors of you know, heavy winds, right? In many cases where there are now earthquakes, endemic earthquakes, 
architects will build as part of the architectural design of those buildings, these anti-fragile, these stresses where the building can sway. Imagine if it were completely rigid so that a little bit of movement brings down the whole thing. That would not be a good thing. So that's why being able to face anti-fragile stressors and come out stronger for them uh, is a very important part of human flourishing. I was thinking of another example as you were going through that, Gad, about diamonds. And the only way you get a beautiful diamond is because it's put under, the rock is put under so much tremendous pressure, right? Exactly right. Exactly right. So you also say, um, Gad, that marriage and work are two of the most critical factors to how happy a person will be. I'd like to talk about both of those with you. And let's start with marriage. How does that contribute to one's fundamental basic happiness? Well, so here, let me bring out my evolutionist hat. Humans face a real existential conundrum when it comes to human sexuality because we've both evolved the need to engage in long-term coupling or, you know, that's the kind of scientific term for marriage or, you know, long-term union, precisely because humans are a biparental species, meaning that human males are actually super dads. When we, when we compare human males to other mammalian dads, we are quite vested in our children and hence we are biparental. So if we are biparental, then it makes perfect evolutionary sense for us to have evolved the emotional system of, of bonding, romantic bonding, romantic love, because we need to have the mechanism by which we're going to stay long enough together to be able to rear our children to their you know, sexual maturity. You know, we, we, we have a long period of juvenility, uh, humans do. And so we need to be bonded long enough for that to happen. But on the other hand, of course, and hence the conundrum, humans have also evolved the desire for sexual variety. And that's why in, a, in another chapter of my happiness book, I have a chapter titled, you know, variety is the spice of life. And then in brackets, sometimes, because it, that's that's where the moral conundrum arises. It makes perfect evolutionary sense for us to want to be married and long-term bonded, but it also is tugging at our Darwinian uh, instinct to want to to stray. That said, though, so I, I wanted to kind of just start with that evolutionary explanation. Uh, what I talk about in that uh, section is what are the types of maxims that you can use that you could at least increase the likelihood of your marriage being successful? And here I'm going to contrast two maxims. There is the opposites attract maxim. And then there is the birds of a feather flock together, Maxim. And it turns out, Monica, it may not surprise you, that when it comes to uh, securing happiness in a long-term union, it's overwhelmingly, the research shows, birds of a feather flock together. For short-term dalliances, being opposites might actually be titillating. It might be exciting. I may be you know, introverted and sexually shy. You may be extroverted and bold and daring. And that mix, that opposite, that those opposite, opposite traits might actually make for a, a more exciting, uh, you know, short-term dalliance. But for long-term mating, we want to find a partner who shares in our life goals and our mindsets and our belief systems. For those types of things, opposites definitely don't attract. And so, that's really what I was talking about there. Now, of course, what I just said will not guarantee you that you will find the forever partner, but boy, do you increase the likelihood of having a successful marriage if you do adhere to the birds of a feather flock together. Oh, that's so interesting. It's such an interesting concept. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking sort of the top line, um, obvious points about if you have a good marriage, you've got contentment, you've got a best friend, you do have a regular sexual partner, you've got stability, you've got safety, um, and you've got a built-in, like I said, support system. So that those are the obvious, but I, <laughs> this is why we come to you, because that other point about birds of a feather, um, I think is a really important one um, that sort of supports the, the rest of it. The, uh, the idea of work because you write about this as well, Gad, it, work bestows great meaning on one's life and a sense of discipline, focus, and reward. Job well done bestows enormous sense of self-satisfaction, right? So how else is a work 
kind of central to your your general happiness? Yes, uh, thanks for that question. So I try to look for a few uh, uh, factors that can, as I said, in the book, I'm not saying please implement these prescriptions and I guarantee you happiness. What I'm saying is that life is a statistical game, right? So that if you implement these things, all other things equal, it increases your chances to be happy. So what are some of these underlying factors that all other things equal increase your professional happiness or not? And so I think there are two fundamental factors. Number one, all other things equal, a job that allows you to instantiate your creative impulse is going to, by definition, be a more direct path to purpose and meaning. So, but now what constitutes the creative impulse might be very, very different across people. I could be a chef and be creative. I can be an architect and be creative. I can be a podcaster and be creative, right? I'm creating new content for people to consume. I could be an author. I could be an academic. I could be all sorts. I could be an artist. So all other things equal, if you can immerse yourself in, in creativity, which is a form of play, which is another thing that I talk about in the book, life as a playground, then you're already likely on your way to being professionally fulfilled. So that's number one. Number two, all other things equal, jobs that grant you temporal freedom are those that are all other things equal going to make you happier. So what do I mean by that? Imagine that you are a factory worker who's even my most basic bodily function when I can take a bathroom break is mandated by my union or my boss. It's at 1030 that you could take a bathroom break. It's at 12 that you can go for lunch for half an hour. Now contrast that structure to let's say my life, which is I wake up in the morning and short of the days when I have to teach so that therefore I'm accountable from 10 to 12, I'm teaching that particular course, or I have a departmental meeting, I'm an intellectual vagabond, right? I just float around doing whatever I feel like. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't have a lot of stress. I, I live a very stressful life, but I would be infinitely more stressed, Monica, if you had every minute of my day accounted for. The fact that I can float, I can now go work for six hours, on the idea for my next book, then I get to have the privilege and pleasure of speaking with Monica on her show. And then I go off and I meet a student to discuss about some of the latest ideas we're thinking of running our next study on. The fact that I've got that temporal freedom gives me a great sense of existential liberty. And so if you can, to the extent that you can, find a way to pursue something creative and hopefully have the you know day-to-day -day freedom to pursue it wherever it takes you, you're well on your way to being happy. Now, the next question that you might ask, so I'll preempt it, is, well, what if I can't have such a job? What if mm -hmm. I, I'm, an, I'm an insurance adjuster and, uh, well, that doesn't allow me to instantiate my creative impulse? There, I would argue that though that impulse may not be met in your profession, but how about after hours when you finish your job? Rather than going home and watching four hours of television, You've always were interested in pursuing uh, your ceramics interest. Why don't you sign up at the Lifelong Learning Institute from 6 to 8 p.m. in that ceramics class? So there are still ways by which we can cater to our creative impulse, to our desire to play, to that sense of freedom, even if it's not at the job. Now, if you can have it at the job, then you really are winning at life. But even if you don't, there is a way to go after it. What do you say to people who are out of work or who are underemployed and they're doing their best to to try to find a new path and a new job? What, what am I saying to them in terms of what? Trying to find the, the right yeah, way? Yeah, to... yeah. What would your advice be, you know, given the parameters of, of happiness? Sure. You know, if somebody is unemployed and they're looking for a new path and a new job, what kind of advice would you give them? So here you, you sort of have two two ropes that are tugging you in in potentially opposite directions. So there's the sort of pragmatic economic reality of I need any job so that I can pay this week's, this month's rent. But okay, fine. And I understand that there might be those constraints. But one of the things that I talk about in the book, towards the end of the book, I have a whole chapter on regret. And so I'm going to come up, I'm going to come to your question in a roundabout way. What you don't want to do is 
constantly be mired in pragmatic pursuits, thus leading you when you're 85 and sitting on that proverbial, you know, uh, uh, bench next to your house saying, my God, I regret my, the choices that I've made in my life. I always wanted to be X, Y, Z, but I decided to, you know, I became a pediatrician because my dad is a pediatrician and so is, you know, his dad. But in reality, I always wanted to be an artist. So if it is possible, always be mindful of the fact that a, a life lived well is one where at the end of your life, you have as few regrets as possible. And so I recognize the fact that oftentimes we can't pursue our passions to their limits because we have kids and we need to feed them and we have to pay the rent, but always at least be mindful of that calculus because the worst thing is you're at the end of your life and there is nothing you can do to unfold the waves of regret that are hitting you. Mm, it's such an important insight because I think a lot of people do live with regret, maybe most people, um, you know, maybe not over the arc of their lives, but certain decisions that they've made or certain choices that they've made, um, they live with some regret. So that's really, really insightful. Kat, thank you. Um, you know, it does seem like, and we see stories about this every once in a while, that people are more unhappy today than ever before. And I, I think about the context of COVID and the lockdowns, and there was so much, so much of that that led to great isolation, depression, anxiety, despair. We see it everywhere. Loneliness is up. Uh, suicide rates are up. The use of antidepressants and anti-anxiety uh, drugs are way up. Why do you think, I mean, obviously COVID is the, is the obvious explanation, but if we tease that out a bit and take a step back, what are we all doing wrong in our search for yes. happiness? Beautiful question. And you'll be happy to know that I've got the answer for it. Excellent. Uh, I actually discuss it and I have a section in the book where I talk about the mismatch hypothesis which is an evolutionary principle. So let, let's, be, before I answer it in the context of your question about why we are you know, generally unhappy as a society or more unhappy, let me first discuss it in the medical context. So if you look at some of the biggest killers, uh, health killers, you know, uh, heart disease and high blood pressure and uh, uh, colon cancer and so on, what the argument from evolutionary uh, minded uh, health professionals is that there is a mismatch between the environment in which many of our adaptations have evolved. So for example, uh, we've evolved in an environment of caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty. Therefore, it makes perfect sense that we are intoxicated by a buffet because it, it it triggers our desire to hoard food. It makes perfect evolutionary sense that we are attracted on average more to fatty foods than to uh, you know raw celery and tofu. Why? Because our, my gustatory preferences and yours are an adaptation to the environment of our ancestors, which was defined by caloric scarcity and caloric uncertainty. The mismatch happens, Monica, when that adaptation for you know desiring high calorie foods and desiring to hoard and gorge on food is no longer relevant or operative in our environment of plenty right today i don't have caloric uncertainty and caloric uh, scarcity uh, the only uncertainty is how long will it take me in terms of the traffic before i get to the mcdonald's so i can get the the Big Mac and the French fries. And so that mismatch between something that was adaptive in the past that becomes maladaptive in the present explains many of our maladies. Now let's apply that exact framework to the, the, the mental health issue that you're talking about. Humans have evolved to be social. Uh, so if you look at the research, say from the longitudinal study at Harvard that's been going on for over 80 years, looking at, you know, what are the key metrics and predictors of well-being, whether it be mental health well-being or even physical well-being, it turns out, Monica, that good social relationships have more protective, you know, power to your health and your mental health than your cholesterol scores when you mm. are 50, right? We have evolved 
to need to bond with others. So never mind the COVID thing, which of course exacerbated the isolation, but the fact that we can live in cities where there are 8 million people, 8 million people around us, but yet every single one of them is a stranger to me. So I feel very isolated despite the fact that I'm surrounded by people uh, doesn't help my mental health. And so because there is now a mismatch between many of the modern day social realities and that which our emotional system expects, we end up having some of the higher rates of depression and anxiety that you're speaking of. Okay, Gad, I'm going to ask you to please stand by. We've got much more ahead with Dr. Gad Sad on the other side. As central banks in countries like China, India, and Australia begin transitioning to a digital currency, the Federal Reserve has been contemplating the same for the U.S. With a digital currency, the government could track every single purchase you make. Officials could even prohibit you from purchasing certain products or even easily freeze or seize part or all of your money. These are some of the reasons concerned Americans are reaching out to Birch Gold Group. They want to have a physical asset that's independent from the U.S. dollar. Gold held tax-sheltered in a retirement account. Learn if gold is right for you, too. Text Monica to 989-898, and they will send you a free info kit on gold. With an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau, thousands of happy customers, and countless five-star reviews, Birch Gold has been helping my listeners from the very beginning. Text MONICA to 989-898 and claim your free info kit on gold because if a central bank digital currency becomes reality, it'll be very nice to have some gold to depend on. Okay, and we are back with Dr. Gad Sad. His new book is called The Sad, S-A-A-D, The Sad Truth About Happiness. I've also heard, and I, I forget where I've read it, but people have written about the, the idea of disappointment or anxiety, despair, anger, really can be traced to the discrepancy between expectations which may be wishful thinking and your expectations may be unrealistic, but your expectations and reality and the gap between your expectation, what you think is going to happen or what the reality might be and the actual reality, that gap creates grave disappointments and a lot of people fall into that and then become unhappy. And to that point, Gad, what has been the impact of social media? There's a lot of discussion with Mark Zuckerberg and, and Twitter and others, but mostly the visual, uh, the more visual social media platforms like Instagram, where people are seeing unrealistic expectations of what they should be, glamorous models, everything is photoshopped and filtered out, etc. And the idea that you can never achieve what you're seeing in social media creates enormous disappointment, depression, anxiety, and, and the rest of it. So could you just comment on that? Sure. Uh, look, social media is a two, two, what is it? Two-edged sword, is that the expression? Uh, it, it has many, many positive elements, right? Uh, there are an, an enormous number of people with whom I've developed you know, wonderful, warm relationships that I would have, my life would never have intersected with the with the trajectory of their lives were it not for social media. And I, before I go on, let me just give you a very quick example. Uh, I got to meet and I've become friends with my childhood musical hero, who's the lead singer of a group from a genre of music called the Philly Sound, the Stylistics. I think you're probably a bit old, uh, younger than me, but maybe you've heard of the stylistics. They're this really hauntingly beautiful soul music. Well, I used to hear this guy singing in my ear, you know, when I was in Lebanon, never mind when I moved to Montreal. And that that 30, 40 years later, I could somehow have an intersection of my life with his only came about because of the magic of social media. So that's so there are a lot of positive things that come from social media. It creates this this potential for hyper connectivity 
and that's undeniable. But of course, to your point, there are also a tremendous number of negative consequences of social media. So if you look at, for example, Instagram or Facebook, what are people doing? They're presenting the the unrealistic, positive, curated, you know, image of themselves, right? It's you're only seeing me when I am traveling to an exotic place. You're only seeing me when I bought this sexy new pair of stiletto shoes, to, to use your example. <laughs> and therefore, you, you, you only see all of the lovely, wonderful manifestations that are happening in someone else's life, but you don't get to see on Facebook that that same person who just bought another pair of shoes or a Ferrari or is traveling to Fiji... Uh, also has a husband or wife that's cheating on them. And so we end up, as you said, tricking our minds to thinking my life sucks. Look at this person. And there, by the way, I, I think there is an old maxim from the ancient Greeks that we could use, know thyself. If you have a strong personhood that doesn't have many fissures, then in a sense, you're inoculated against how well or poorly other people are, are doing. So that goes back to the earlier point you mentioned about that internal compass for happiness, right? I present myself to the world and I'm happy with my lot in life, irrespective of whether Monica is happy or not, or whether she visited Fiji or not. It, now, if you're happy, great. I'm happy for you. But my sense of existential bliss does not depend on whether others have a better in life or worse. Mm -hmm. I'm happy because, you know, I have a great wife. I have a great job. I, I, I have purpose and meaning in my life and so on and so forth. So I know it's easier said than done, but ideally people should not be tricked by the curated images that they see on social media. Really important point. Run your own race and don't be seduced by what's on social media because in many ways it's unreality. It's not reality what you're seeing and everybody, you know, everybody has stuff in their life that's not great and you never see that. You just see the vacation in Fiji and that has the effect of making you feel bad. And I, I know children who are on social media or teenagers, young adults, and they are so suggestible and it really is having a negative impact on them. In our final moments with you, Gad, I want to talk to you about the role of faith with happiness. What can you tell us about people of faith? Is there a positive correlation between faith and happiness? Uh, well, certainly the research uh, says that, yes, there is a moderate positive correlation between happiness and religiosity. And now the, 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 the mechanism by which that comes about uh, could be a very earthly explanation, right? Uh, it doesn't have to be couched in a supernatural narrative in that to the extent that religiosity grants me greater communality within my group, a greater sense of cohesion, a greater likelihood of cooperation and reciprocity with members of my shared faith, all of those very earthly things can cause me to feel existentially happier. So even, even if I were to uh, ignore any supernatural elements to why I might be happier for in being religious, there are clear reasons why those who are religious are on average going to be happier than those who are uh, less religious, if not religious at all. But that said, you might remember that in, in uh, that section where I talk about the link between religiosity and happiness, I also want to assuage the, the fears of non-believers. In other words, I want people to know that even if you are not necessarily committed to a religious narrative, you can see spirituality and divinity in, in, in daily moments in your life, right? You and I are now having this, hopefully people will agree, wonderful conversation, which to me is a manifestation of the divine. I could have a serendipitous meeting with someone on the street who comes up to me because they recognize me and then we get lost in a 20-minute conversation. That is very spiritual and that is very divine. And so it depends what you mean by religiosity. Uh, I think that one can seek spiritual experiences uh, either through organized religion or through simply the, the majesty of life. But yes, to summarize, more religious implies greater happiness. Mm. 
In addition to faith, Gad, you also talk about laughter truly being the best medicine, right? There are so many cliches that are cliches because they're true, and laughter uh, being the best medicine is certainly one of them. Can you tell us what you found with regard to just, you know, playful outlook, sense of humor, and laughter? Well, I mean, there literally is, you know, a physiological response that happens when, you know, you laugh. But on a more sort of existential sense, to live life as though it's one gigantic playground is a wonderful way to live life. So as you probably know, I, you know, I'm, I was delighted to, to find out that, you know, you follow me on social media. I constantly will use satire, sarcasm. I'm playful. You know, many of the skits that I do on my uh, channel you know, I will don a pink wig to pretend that I am a woke person. I will self-flagellate to, you know, to mock the sense of, I mean, literally self-flagellate like with a whip, right? Mm. Now, now, why do I do that? Well, number one, because satire and sarcasm are incredibly powerful ways to convey a message, right? The reason why dictators are likely to kill the satirists first, because a dictator is a lot more afraid of, of the person who's got a sharp tongue, a satirical tongue, and who's got the the mighty pen who can attack your ideology more so than being afraid of the guy who's got the big muscles. So we first have to get rid of all satirists who might satirize my dictatorial impulse. And so laughter, satire, sarcasm, humor are such a fundamental feature of who we are. By the way, women will often say, I want to marry or be with someone who is funny. What they're effectively saying, Monica, I'm sure you already knew this, is that they want someone who's intelligent because it's very, very unlikely to have someone who is very funny, who is not intelligent. So being funny is a proxy construct of being intelligent, right? Dave Chappelle is probably a lot smarter than many of my highfalutin ivory tower colleagues in academia, Mm -hmm. because you wouldn't be able to come up with all of these brilliant humorous insights that he comes up with were he not very high IQ and many serious things in life could, could benefit from being pursued with a playful mindset. So for example, when I went through the Lebanese civil war, Monica, I remember my parents telling me when I would be playing outside when there was a a lull in fighting, they would say, don't cross this particular line where our building was, because then that would open you up to to the sight of the snipers who would then blow your brain apart, right? So even in such a outlandishly dangerous environment, I had to instantiate, to cater to my play instinct. Even in the Holocaust, in concentration camps, there are incredible stories of some of the games that people would play to be able to get... I mean, what could be more tragic than the Holocaust, yet people were still instantiating their desire to play? The movie Life is Beautiful, which won the Academy Awards, I think, in 1997, was about a dad who is trying to protect his son in the concentration camps from the reality that they were facing by pretending that it was all a game. So humor, laughter, a playful mindset are you know, inoculates you against some of the difficult vagaries of life. So when in doubt, laugh. <laughs> it's great advice. It really is. And just the other day, I saw a hilarious video on Instagram, two dogs, and this video just went viral. I cannot stop watching it because peals of laughter came out of me. And I, you know, when you really laugh like that, belly laughs like that, and tears are coming down your face, and you can't stop it, it's out of your control. It is just such a beautiful experience. And when the the laughter finally ends like that, um, you feel so much more relaxed. It's like an endorphin rush and you just feel like, oh, okay, the world is a good place and I can take on whatever else is going to come at me. So it's a fantastic advice. Gad, I absolutely love this book. It is such an important and necessary book for everybody to read, particularly now when there are so many stressors and and there's so much uncertainty and upheaval in all of our lives. The book is called The Sad, S-A-A-D, The Sad Truth About Happiness. Go get it. It's available everywhere. It is, it, it's going to be absolutely indispensable to you leading a better life. 
and an absolutely necessary uh, a detour for all of us, given so much darkness around. Ged, I cannot thank you enough for being here and for writing this lovely book. Is there any other place that you can send us to? Remind us of your social media and your website. Well, thank you for those lovely comments. Uh, so on Twitter, you could follow me at Gad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. I also have a uh, you know personal website, gadsad.com, where you know you can you know you can have all kinds of contact points with me. I have a show, as I think you mentioned early on, it's called The Sad Truth. It's both on YouTube and on podcast. It's a combination of things. In some cases, I will uh, chat with people in the way that we're doing now. In other cases, something pisses me off, and, <laughs> and then I I open up the laptop and I go on a seven minute rant. Oftentimes, a humorous rant, but it's a lot of really cool content. And so, um, yeah, I'm, I'm on Instagram, I'm on Facebook. I'm not easy. I'm not. It's not difficult to find me. So hopefully, people will connect. And uh, thank you for an incredible conversation. And uh, as we said earlier, I'd be happy eventually to come back to discuss the parasitic mind. I would absolutely love that. Dr. Gad Saad, G-A-D-S-A-A-D. All of his work is extraordinary, and that includes this new book, The Sad Truth About Happiness, Eight Secrets for Living the Good Life. Gad, thank you so much, my friend. Thank you so much. Cheers. Wow, what a show, right? A different kind of Monica Crowley podcast show. I just feel like every once in a while, you guys, we need a relief from just the constant onslaught of what is, what is coming at us because we all need our mental and physical health to be on point if we're going to wage these wars for the future of America, the future of human freedom. These are big, big battles that we are in and we need to keep ourselves centered and grounded and yes, happy. So that's why I wanted to do this show today and I hope you guys enjoyed it. I hope you got a lot out of it. Please tell your friends, family, colleagues about this particular show, but also about the Monica Crowley uh, podcast writ large because we want as many people as possible with us on this great adventure. All right, guys, thank you so much for being here as always. Have a fantastic weekend, and I will see you right back here next Tuesday. Okay.